Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, and this is another edition of our Comfort's Corner inside look at what's happening around the transit industry as we respond to and work on recovery from the COVID-19 crisis. Today is what was originally tax day, April 15th, uh, and it's the midweek episode of Comfort's Corner. As I mentioned, it was tax day in the U.S. as part of the recovery effort. Uh, the United States passed uh, some laws which uh, pushed the actual date of um, when the uh, you know when when taxes will be due to July fifteenth, and so a lot of folks are not as concerned about tax day this year. But as part of that bill, also there was twenty five billion dollars uh, which came out in this two trillion dollar stimulus package, which came out. We're going to tell you about the first. Um, place in the country that's starting to download the money, at least on the rural side. We'll go through some other headline news. And then I'm excited to have as our newsmaker guest today, um, our newsmaker guest is going to be the CEO and general manager of Oahu Transit Services, my good friend, Roger Morton, who I spoke with last evening on a great interview about what's happening in Hawaii. You probably heard, like he told me, you can get on the island right now, but you might have difficulty getting off. And so he talks about what's happening with their COVID-19 relief efforts there and, and um, how it's been impacted. And then we'll take a read from our book uh, and Jeffrey Art the CEO of VIA Metropolitan Transit Services in San Antonio, Texas, reads to us a portion from his chapter in our book, The Future of Public Transportation. All that on this edition of Comfort's Corner. As I mentioned, the $2 trillion stimulus package, which came out of Washington, D.C. a couple weeks ago, has been started to actually be dispersed. And in Jefferson City, Missouri, uh, Governor Mike Parson announced this week, yesterday, that Missouri is the first state in the nation to receive a federal grant for rural transit as part of the COVID-19 relief. The U.S. Department of Transportation's Federal Transit Administration on Monday of this week announced a $61.7 million grant to the Missouri Department of Transportation, MoDOT, where my uh, old boss, Pete Ron, used to be the secretary. And as part of the Coronavirus Aid Relief Economic Security CARES Act signed by President Trump on March 27th. Uh, the governor of Missouri uh, said that these funds will provide a needed boost to rural transit systems in Missouri, as many have reduced service due to COVID-19 crisis. And he thanks everybody for helping their rural transit systems stay alive. This $25 billion included $2.2 billion to rural areas, and MoDOT will use the funds in Missouri for operating expenses and capital assistance for 30 Missouri rural agencies, including the Cape Girardeau County Transportation Authority, the nonprofit OATS, which uh, you know is famous. They serve 87 Missouri counties, and the City of Excelsior Spring and New Bourbon Regional Port Authority ferryboat operator. Uh, and so, as you know, the funds go back to January 20th and are eligible, including operating expenses to maintain service as well as payment for administrative leave for transit personnel due to reducing operations during an emergency. And uh, so very exciting. The money is starting now to make it out and we, we make it out to the um, to the transit agencies. Along those lines, we held a very uh, successful live webinar yesterday. I hosted it as part of our Transit Unplugged Trapeze Package. We had six CEOs on it. We had uh, Inez Evans, CEO of Indigo in Indianapolis, Scott Bogren, CEO or Executive Director of the Community Transportation Association of America, Wade Coombs representing Canada from Strathcona County, who's also a um, head of one of the regions for CUDA, the Canadian Urban Transit Association there, the Western region. Bill Carpenter, my good friend from Rochester, New York, uh, who is CEO of their transit system there, Julie Tim from Richmond, and Kevin Quinn, my successor at MTA in Maryland here in Baltimore. And uh, Wade Coombs made a point on the call 
which was that he wants to get the money out of Washington and into Rochester as soon as possible and doesn't want to let it sit in the bank accounts in Washington. And there was a little bit of discussion back and forth between Scott Bogren and him about what the best way was to handle these funds. Uh, and, and, but Bill definitely was recommending, and he's head of, uh, I think, the Bus Alliance here in the U.S., um, he was encouraging transit systems to go ahead and apply for the money and get the money through their federal formula funds uh, and get it in, into their bank account so that they can begin using it uh, to supplement their services. That's not the case in Canada. Last night, I was texting back and forth with Kevin Desmond, who is CEO of TransLink, which serves the Vancouver metro area, the metro Vancouver area in British Columbia. And he says the agency has done its best it can to keep services running for essential services, but with operating revenues reduced by half since mid-March, emergency relief funding is needed or drastic service cuts will be put into place. He said in an interview with Mass Transit Magazine, we've done the best we can to keep essential services operating for those workers who need it to get to their workplaces, but we are losing $75 million a month, that's uh, Canadian dollars, and on our current trajectory, we will face cash flow issues within weeks. It's a dire situation, which will force us to cancel entire routes and significantly reduce service levels on all transit modes, meaning far longer wait times and much more crowding for customers. The agency says operating revenues have been reduced by 50% since mid-March from a combination of factors, including a reduction of ridership levels, falling fuel tax revenue, and fare removal on the bus system to promote physical distancing. And that's the same issue that's been experienced here in the U.S. And those who got their funding through sales tax have experienced an even bigger hole that they're going to have to fill. Uh, and so that's, that's become a real issue for several agencies or many agencies across the U.S. And you can see in Canada, since they don't have federal money, there's concern there. TransLink is seeking emergency relief from the Canadian and provincial governments to offset losses incurred for providing essential transit services during the pandemic. And uh, the Canadian Urban Transit Association, my good friend Marco D'Angelo is CEO there. Uh, we talked to him on this show a couple weeks ago. And on that day, on March 30th, he stepped out right after our show and asked the federal government, submitted an official request to them to step in and help Canadian transit agencies in three ways providing $400 million per month to help systems make up for lost revenue. This is the reduction in um, fare box revenue as the ridership declines and allow access to $1.2 billion to help systems maintain liquidity before revenue relief can arrive. And three, assist the Canadian transit providers secure and help cover the cost of disinfectants and other personal protective equipment. I thought that's a very reasonable request uh, personally, and, uh, but they don't have it yet. CUTA says transit has yet to be included in the federal pandemic relief packages, and the association notes transit service reductions are going to hurt people that this service is meant to help during this pandemic, which is the frontline workers. Marco says transit systems are experiencing large drops in revenue and ridership there in Canada. Large cuts to service levels will hurt frontline workers on whom we depend in this pandemic. The people who clean our buildings and work in essential retail stores take the bus to work. They deserve good levels of service so they can get home to family and do so on vehicles that allow for safe physical distancing. And D'Angelo says that without support from the federal or provincial governments, layoffs and further service reductions in Canada will be more widespread and that he is hopeful transit will be included in the relief efforts. And so uh, a lot of folks are calling for uh, for the federal government to get involved and help them. A lot of money in, um, in Canada is, uh, is 
for transit systems comes to the provincial governments. And we're going to talk more to the CEO of uh, BC Transit, which covers all of British Columbia, my good friend Erin Pinkerton, on this program on Friday. And we'll ask her those questions about, uh, you know, how funding normally takes place and are the uh, provincial governments uh, you know, ponying up any more dollars and what's the federal government's going to involvement look like it's being at this at this stage if anything happens before Friday. So very interesting, uh, interesting news coming out of um, Canada as that they are really desperate now uh, to get this money in. Um, a couple other uh, tidbits and news for you. If you're uh, if you're available, you should tune in next Tuesday. In addition to the CEO roundtable I did this past Tuesday, for the next two Tuesdays, I'll be doing additional roundtables on the air live for you to listen to at 2 p.m. Eastern time. You can just go to trapezegroup.com and register. Uh, I'll be doing one on Tuesday called Preparing for Beyond COVID-19 Business as Usual. It'll include at least Lauren Skyver, CEO and General Manager of Sunline Transit, and Peter Stark, General Manager of Whatcom Transportation Authority. We'll be asking them about, um, you know, not only what the trends are and what's happening with the trends, but how are they making progress during this pandemic? And how are we going to see our way out of it? I'm also looking for a couple more guests. So if you're a CEO or a top executive of a transit agency and you haven't, you know, uh, been on one of these podcasts in the last few weeks, I'd love to have you on. I've got a few people in mind, but I thought I would just throw it out there in general. So if you want to be on this, this one or the following one, I've got one coming up the following Tuesday. And by the way, we had 100 and I think 30 or 40 people register for the online uh, webinar yesterday. So a lot of folks are from all over you know, the world, but particularly here in North America, we're listening. The following week, I'll have Jim McDonald on, as well as a bunch of people from my company, Trapeze, and other uh, you know, transit executives uh, for that one, talking about uh, using technology to help us move out. I mean, think about it. A lot of folks, let's say, in a reservation center for ADA paratransit have been normally sitting in a room, just like in Washington, D.C., the one I used to oversee for WMATA when I worked for MV Transportation. I had maybe 90 reservationists sitting in a room at a time, elbow to elbow, you know, in these, in these long tables with, you know, they had dividers up in between them, but they were still right there. Well, that's not possible these days, and folks are having to do a lot of this work from home. And uh, wouldn't it be nice if people could book their trips online or book it on their phone? Well, you know, that is possible right now. And so some people are starting to use those capabilities even more. They had it, but they weren't using it. Some people are saying, hey, we need to think about how technology, even like on the fare box area, do we need to move more to e-faring and away from, you know, the old uh, cash fare boxes? There's a lot of talk now. And I just wrote an article for Axios News Service um, where I submitted to them and um, uh, have also submitted one to uh, Metro Magazine, who will be running in their May edition. Some of the long-term implications of this whole COVID-19 crisis could be the death of the fare box and greatly reducing the use of cash in transit systems um, around, the, around the world. And so um, I think that's a very real possibility. Uh, and so anyway, well, that's, that's something to be thinking about. One other interesting thing before we wrap up this uh, headline news story is that the New York MTA has decided that it's going to give $500,000 to the families of workers who have been killed by the virus. So the survivors of transit workers who die of the coronavirus will get $500,000 in line of duty death benefits from the New York MTA. The authority and three labor unions agree to the increased benefits after more than 50 transit workers have died of the virus. So that's big news uh, in New York that they're gonna pay a special death benefit. And a lot of folks are doing other things. One transit agency recently decided they were gonna give $500 uh, hero bonuses to people who are working on the front lines. And there's all kinds of efforts being done to make sure that we remember our frontline troops uh, who are, you know, 
the bus drivers, the mechanics, and the cleaners, and uh, the road supervisors, and all the other folks who are working so hard in the transit industry to make our economy and our society continue to function. And that's what this show is all about, making sure that we keep you on top of the inside news of what's happening in the transit world. So that's it for the headline news. Be sure to stay tuned for our Newsmaker interview with Roger Morton, who's head of transportation in Honolulu, Hawaii, uh, Oahu Transit Services, and then an exciting uh, reading of his chapter by the CEO of VIA Metropolitan Transit Services in San Antonio, Jeffrey Arndt. Stay tuned. It's a great show, and stay safe out there. All right. Thank you for being with us today on Comfort's Corner, part of Transit Unplugged. And today on our Newsmaker interview uh, line is Roger Morton, who is the CEO and President and General Manager of Oahu Transit Services in Honolulu. Roger, thanks for being with us today. I'm pleased to be with you, Paul. I think, uh, how's things on the mainland? Yeah, things are things are about the same as they are there, I think, except you guys are even more maybe, uh, you know, con- contained. Because I, can you even get off Hawaii now? Would they let you off the island or is it all kind of tight? Oh, you can get off the island. You just can't get on the island. Oh, that's what it is. So if you get off, you're not coming back on. Okay. Well, uh, you're about as far away from me as I think anybody in the world could be because I'm near Washington, D.C., and you're in Honolulu. Um, So, But thanks again for being with us today. I think folks are very interested in some of the innovative ideas that transit leaders are coming up with on how we're going to recover. But first off, I'd like you to tell us about the impact that this is having on your transit system, and then we'll get into recovery. Well, obviously, like everybody else, this has had a tremendous impact on our bus system, on our paratransit system. Our ridership levels are about 35% of where they were before this started. Uh, Our level of service for our uh, fixed route service is about 86% of where it was. So we actually still have a a fairly high uh, level of service. We've supplemented it with all of our commuter services. Uh, and we are still carrying 60 to 70,000 people a day on our buses. We're obviously monitoring them very closely for social distancing purposes, and we're making uh, making adjustments almost on a daily basis. But we seem to have, our ops people seem to have reached a, a level of stability where I think that we are we are good going forward. Uh, but that begs the question, really, of what does going forward mean, uh, and uh, you know, we have a couple of things going on in Hawaii besides this, uh, besides this virus, which is obviously uh, top of mind and for uh, most important concern for all of us now. But looking forward, uh, in uh, in the end of this year, in December, maybe January now, because things have slowed down a little bit, we are planning to open our interim rail system, and that's a uh, uh, it's going to be a 20-mile uh, grade-separated, uh, elevated rail system that will reach from the western side of our island uh, all the way to our central uh, Honolulu. Uh, the first segment will be 10 miles long, and that is the segment that we're planning to open in December-January timeframe. Uh, I'm very worried about how will we rebuild our ridership uh, from where we were, not only on just on the bus system, but on our entire multimodal system, our buses are soon to have rail, our handy van paratransit system, uh, and and all of those things. Another project that we are uh, in the midst of uh, right now is launching our HoloCard. Our HoloCard is our account-based fare system. 
Uh, we have a project uh, within it, and uh, we have about 20,000 people on it already, but we still consider it at this point in a test mode. But our schedule was to start launching that full uh, in large scale uh, in the summer, uh, building toward when we will have our rail open, because our rail is a barrier system. It has fare gates. It requires a smart card in order to get entry. So we need to get our smart card project going. So that's where I see an opportunity, at least for us in Honolulu. Uh, part of launching that uh, Holo card uh, was to have a marketing effort that went along with launch. But I'm thinking right now that what we need is we need to have a marketing program that is larger than what we initially envis envisioned for the smart card project, and we'll combine it with we need to get back to transit. We need to get back to some form of normalcy in transit. Uh, if we turn the switch back on and our country goes back to uh, normal or as normal as it will be under the new normal, uh, I'm very worried that we're not going to see the ridership levels that we had just before this pandemic caused us all to make changes. And that's where I think that we need to have a very coordinated marketing program in order to, to get back. We need to convince the public that the vehicles are clean, that they're safe to ride on, uh, and that's going to be my job one and my mission for the next uh, uh, few months. I agree with you 100%, Roger. Uh, it's, it's, you, you know, it's disconcerting to hear politicians say, don't ride the bus. You know, that's the exact opposite message of what we've been trying to say for the last 30 years. And finally, at the end of 2019, public transit was on an upswing nationwide when yeah. it comes to ridership. We had three quarters back to back uh, with commuter services leading the way. And now, of course, commuter services have taken the biggest hit. These commuter trains and buses are down 95% in some places. Kevin Quinn told yeah. me today from MTA in Baltimore that some of their routes are down to only 3% of their ridership. And so, like you said, uh, this is going to be a heavy hit. It's going to be difficult uh, to, to get people back on. Now, the positive, now on the flip side, okay, two weeks ago, David Zipper was telling me they were only up to 65% post-pandemic. Now, basically three to four weeks post-pandemic, they're at 80%, according to the data I received today. And so I know that the, the ridership makeup and, and the demographic of riders there in Wuhan may be more uh, toward um, – people who really need transit aren't choice riders like a lot of commuters are, but that still gives me hope that even in the, the epicenter of this pandemic, that they're back up to 80%. Have you done any projections or any thoughts about, I mean, is your, is your ridership a lot of tourists or is it, you know, a good mix of tourists and citizens or what? Uh, well, uh, there are, uh, our ridership has about 8%, uh, which was made up of tourists or visitors. Okay. Uh, Leaving about, you know, most of our riders, 90, 90% or more, are our local residents. Uh, and part of that is because, uh, you know, we have a very vibrant uh, private tourist-oriented transportation system or uh, transit systems. We have several transit systems, some of which uh, are hop-on, hop-off services that look very much like transit. In fact, they share our bus stops in many places, uh, and they do a good job of marketing the services uh, to uh, particularly to the Asian wholesalers that uh, are have always been very vibrant and they've uh, they've been building out. I'm also worried about them. I mean, I think it's a very healthy thing for our economy to have private sector providers that are operating uh, without a public subsidy and are making uh, creating jobs and are doing a really an excellent job of of doing that specialized transportation. And it also takes the load off of the public system, so I don't get complaints from my my local folks that uh, they're 
that uh, they're taking up all the space or that we're catering uh, to the visitor trade. Uh, we, we, we obviously serve the visitor trade, but we don't really cater to the visitor trade. Okay. So what's next for Oahu Transit Service as you talked about the recovery? Uh, we're we're uh, talking today for the um, Wednesday, April 15th tax day, the old tax day, now it's July 15th or even beyond, uh, episode of this podcast. What do you see happening in the next few weeks for your transit system as you try to, you know, have you, in Hawaii, have you kind of reached the top of the hill and do you think you're coming down where you can maybe start thinking about gradually bringing back service to uh, higher levels or, or what do you see happening? Well, I think that's a political decision more than anything else uh, for me, for us. Okay. Uh, and I don't see us uh, uh, coming back, on, and then I'm just going to speculate until no earlier than the end of May. Uh, okay. That's uh, that, that's my uh, reading of the tea leaves here, and in listening to uh, what our governor says and what our mayor says. So I think that we are uh, going to hunker down for maybe another four or five weeks. Uh, ultimately, we all want to get back, and we want to get back as soon as it's safe and as soon as we can. Uh, we have been fortunate in Hawaii uh, that uh, we took uh, shelter in place pretty early on. Uh, the rates of infection here are uh, in the three-digit numbers range, so they're 500 or so, uh, and uh, we don't seem to have a, uh, a exponential increase uh, of what's going on here. Most of our cases, 80% of them were travel-related. 20% were community spread. So, uh, you know, I think, I think we're fortunate that way. On the other hand, I don't see our leaders here of uh, turning on our tourism industry uh, any time soon. Uh, they have, uh, we have a 14-day mandatory quarantine in effect. We haven't banned tourism, but if you come to Hawaii, you have to quarantine for 14 days, which is a right. substantial discouragement. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, uh, I, could, I can think of worse places to quarantine. <laughs> yeah, and, and apparently there's a bunch of people around the country that have come to the same conclusion that yeah. if, they, if they have to stay in their home and wherever they are, they'd rather be in Hawaii. Yeah, I bet. Uh, so, so I got to uh, it sounds like I got to wait to the fall to come visit you then, huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the airlines, of course, are, are a big piece of it, and uh, the number of flights that come into our island has drastically been reduced. Uh so, you know, we, we're going to see some uh, time before we, we do it. And I think that, uh, you know, if I was to see uh, two weeks after, three weeks after this all ended, if I was to see 80% uh, ridership return, uh, then I think that would be a good thing. That's in line with what I think that where we'll be, is somewhere between 75 to 80%, uh, maybe a month after uh, we get back to normal. Uh, but that still leaves, uh, you know, a good chunk. That still leaves 40,000 or so daily riders that we need to figure out how we're going to uh, get get them back, how we're going to convince them that it's safe to ride transit, and, and how we're going to get them back to, uh, to uh, where we were before this all started. And then hopefully going forward into the following year with a new impetus, a new stimulus for us, which is rail, that we will uh, then uh, have a new paradigm here on, on how transit's going to work in Hawaii. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing with us today, Roger. You've got an amazing system there. You're one of the few systems, maybe people don't understand this, but you cover 
the entire island of Oahu. I mean, your buses go from border to border. Uh, it's not like, you know, a city and then you, I mean, you cover all of it and you have to cover all of it with your ADA service. And you guys do an amazing job out there. I've been there a couple of times and seen the work you're doing. And you're relied on by so many people for the, for the whole island economy to continue to run. Uh, you truly have always been, but even now, even more so, are seen as an essential service. And so we wish you the very best as you move on in this recovery. Well, Paul, thank you so much for having me today. In 1789, Benjamin Franklin wrote, Nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. I believe change should be added to that list. Change is a constant thread throughout our lives. We learn to crawl, then learn to walk. We learn to talk, then learn to talk back. So simply, to change, we must learn. And these times, we must learn more quickly with every passing day. Technology is enabling broad change across multiple sectors. In the span of the baby boomers, we have gone from three TV networks through satellite TV, Betamax, VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, cable TV, and streaming content. My granddaughters cannot fathom having a landline, let alone a party line. And in the realm of mobility, we have gone from a for-profit mobility transit services through development of the interstate highway network with the attendant suburbanization of American cities, introduction of TNCs, and the emerging world of micro-mobility. Automated vehicles are beckoning from the future. Now, history is full of examples where change was ignored to the detriment of the blissfully ignorant. Ask Blockbuster if they were still around to be asked, or visit your local mall. We were not all that good at predicting those changes either. Five years ago, electric scooters were not on our radar. On the other hand, the 1990s prediction that transit would be on fuel cells by 2020 has not really panned out. Transit has not always adapted quickly or well. The law of the hammer states that when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. Transit's hammer was the basic model of fixed-route scheduled service, and we pushed that model outside of the urban core for which it was created into suburban communities whose very design and form made that model unworkable. But the good news is that the transit industry is fast realizing that what worked in the past environment does not work universally in the current. Technology improvements and disruptive competition have played a part in that wake-up call, but the important thing is that we are now awake, alert, and responding. One San Antonio example is the introduction of Violink services in May of 2019. Violink is a recognition and response to the fact that suburban communities are not a nail to our hammer. Instead, we identified an area where our hammer was not working and developed a different mobility tool. The new tool we are piloting is our version of on-demand mobility. Using the Violink app, customers request a trip from their origin to destination. Those who do not have app-friendly phones can instead call into the system. The app will return the name of the Violink driver, the model and license plate of the vehicle, the estimated time of pickup, and the estimated time of arrival at destination. The customer will then be directed to a nearby virtual stop and can track the progress of the vehicle as it approaches. All vehicles have bicycle racks and most are wheelchair accessible. 
about 66 to 75% of the time, the driver will stop to pick up another passenger along the way. And upon arrival, the customer will be prompted to rate their driver much like Liber does. The results of this pilot service have been remarkable. The average wait time between requesting accepting a trip and the vehicle arriving to pick up the customer is only about eight minutes. The customer reviews are very favorable. The average scoring of all trips is 4.6 to 4.7 out of 5. It's very easy to spot drivers who are not providing expected quality of service and respond to any improvement opportunities. Economically, the cost per passenger is between 20% and 40% lower than the cost associated with fixed-route service. So you see, transit is not just buses or bus and rail. Transit is mobility, and we have more than buses in our VIA toolbox. In many ways, the technology and models introduced by Rideshare Trends laid out a pathway for transit to provide a broader array of services. Transit stands at an exciting crossroad today.